psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, my guest was Dr. Torsten Passy. Torsten is a professor of psychiatry and psychotherapy at Hanover Medical School in Germany and is currently visiting scientist at Goethe University in Frankfurt. He has previously studied philosophy and sociology at Leibniz University and did his medical training at Hanover Medical School. From 1998 until 2010, he was a scientist and psychiatrist at Hanover Medical School, where he researched the fields of addictions and psychophysiology of altered states of consciousness with specific focus on their healing potential. He investigated the clinical usage of hallucinogenic drugs such as cannabis, ketamine, nitrous oxide and psilocybin. From 2012 until 2015, he was also visiting professor at Harvard Medical School in Boston. He is the author of the recent book, Science of Microdosing Psychedelics, and that's available through Psychedelic Press. The book, plus as usual, all the links will be available in the blog post associated with this podcast. Just go to mindmanifestpodcast.com for more info. So I snatched a bit of time with Torsten at the recent Breaking Convention Conference in Greenwich University, And we had limited time, as we both had several other commitments that day, so he was a really good sport for offering us the time. And so we decided to just launch straight more into a bit more of a deep dive into HPPD and the therapeutic future of psychedelic compounds more generally. Torsten has appeared on numerous other podcasts where he talks more generally about his work and life. Uh, I don't really like doubling up on content, so... I will link to those other podcasts he has appeared in, and that will provide a bit of more of a background to his professional work. But I decided to just get his expert opinion straight away and his scholarly opinion on the actual clinical reality of HPPD. Is it a load of old guff, or is it a legitimate psychiatric complication of psychedelic-induced states that all therapists should be looking for? Okay, so uh, let's start first with a basic thing, which is uh, you have two diagnostic manuals uh, in psychiatry on the whole world. This is uh, the ICD-10, which is the International Classification of Diseases uh, designed by the um, uh, World Health Organization. So that's a valid thing on the whole world. But an exclusion or an exception is uh, the US. They have their own uh, diagnostic manual and interestingly enough, the ICD-10 does not include HPPD, and even the next version will not, because the you could say the sober Europeans or the sober uh, scientific community in the World Health Organization does not accept this diagnosis, that it exists. Uh, this is different with the, in the US. Uh, interestingly enough, the history of that kind of concept is, first off, there was never a report of that kind during all the ten thousands of subjects which have been treated and experimentally given the drug during the 1950s and 60s. It was never, there was no report about that kind of phenomenon. Not ever. a single case. Not, very, not a single case. So that is astonishing anyway. Then in the 1980s there was a guy near Boston who hadn't published about anything else. He came up with that concept that he found people which have chronic uh, visual disturbances after having an uh, experience with an hallucinogen. It was kind of induced by it and it was permanently there. 
Interestingly enough, this guy, it seems to me, he perceived his chance to be a big scientist by bringing up a new danger about LSD. So he conducted what he called a study. Interestingly enough, even his estimate is that this, this kind of perceptual aberration might show up in one out of 100,000 hallucinogen users. So it's a very rare condition, even in his eyes. But astonishingly enough, he, on his psychiatric ward near Boston, found 20 out of 50 patients. Uh, but if you look at his publication, they will say, oh, 10 of those had psychosis, these were heavy heroin addicts, and so on. So they had a lot of what you could call comorbidity. And it's really astonishing that the guy who is giving that estimate finds so many people on his psychiatric ward. So you can really distrust these kind of studies. Interestingly enough, the American Psychiatric Association took that seriously and implemented that kind of diagnosis into the U.S. diagnostic manual based just on this suspicious tiny little bit of evidence with what that guy brought up. There is a gen general phenomenon about that. So if you would publish a case study about a person who has cut off his penis on LSD, that would be immediately published. If you would come up with a publication that somebody gets so much better because of an LSD-induced mystical experiences, they would reject that publication and say, that's just anecdotal stuff, you know, we are not interested in that. And so if you bring up a danger, you will be selected as a good publication. If you bring up something positive about the psychedelics in an anecdotal kind of way, then you will be rejected. And that's how we perceive inappropriately perceive these kind of matters. So back in the 50s, probably the late 50s, I'm thinking this, and it was a psychiatrist, you say, who came on the scene and started to saw his... Yeah, in the 80s. In, yeah. in, it was in the 80s. He, yeah. he, he went, uh, this opportunistic psychiatrist thought... You could say so, yes. Yeah. I, have, I see this opportunity to make a name for myself yeah, without exactly. having done all of the yeah. big data work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't need to be particularly yeah. robust because I can put it in the slipstream of public opinion, exactly. which will get percolated exactly. down into the exactly. statistical manuals. Yeah. And then once it's in, it's in. Yeah, exactly. And you still can publish about these kind of things. For example, all these reports beyond our own study at Harvard, uh, but all the other reports are just anecdotal reports on a very few cases. And so you might even even produced by these kind of publication bias, uh, publishing uh, easily pathological results on LSD, you might even uh, produce a scientific artifact. Because if some people think, oh, with just one case claiming that he has a visual disturbance, I can go into a big journal, you know, without doing so much work on IRBs and, and, and how to proceed with a scientific study and getting permissions and stuff. You don't need that. You just need an anecdotal report, a subjective statement from a person, you know, and then you're done and getting publications. So a lot of people were going on that horse and writing it and getting publications done. And so later on, they say, oh, we can do a review on all these anecdotal case reports and stuff. And then it gets harder and harder and harder, even if it doesn't exist. Sure. It's the it's the founder effect. You get a, a body of a critical mass of data and then... You have a good understanding. It's that um, the, the process for how things get sort of written in almost constitutionally to these diagnostic manuals... That would be interesting to un unpack, like, okay, that doesn't sound like it went through a lot of due process, but to, to give the devil its due, 
if you and I were dis dis discovering something, we thought it was phenomenologically probabilistic, and we, we bring this up to the, the relevant bodies, what are they saying to us? Look, if you want this in the next edition or the one after that, here are the steps. Could you maybe like lay out what the steps are for no. conditions? Uh, you are right. Uh, in uh, the uh, ICD-10 or ICD-11, the uh, WHO uh, manuals, there you have that kind of very heavy process you have to go through to bring in a new diagnostic feature or something like that. But this is not as hard with the DSM it's, uh, in the US. Uh, the U.S. diagnostic uh, uh, manual is uh, much more manipulated by commercial interests. And they know that. And even the American Psy uh, Psychiatric Association has brought out these kind of statements that there are some diagnostic features in there which might have been manipulated by the commercial side of psychiatry. Well, one of the things which has become apparent, and I've taken from a lot of this, the stuff coming out of Imperial, was that... The paradigm shift that I think might happen, and tell me what you think of this, in diag diag diagnosis, let's say, is that there are clear reasons why we know scientifically that the map that the DSM provides us with is not the territory because you have massive comorbidity across all of these conditions. You have substances that are used off-label all of the time. Every psychiatrist and psychologist knows this. You don't use antidepressants just for antidepression, antipsychotics, etc. And then you have really poor inter-rater reliability. So any clinician knows you get someone along, they've been around the houses, and it's like, what diagnosis have you been given in the past? And they produce a phone book, and you think, these aren't stupid people doing this, so the map is not the territory. And that's been driven by the insurance companies predominantly or other or big pharma? Yeah, or big pharma big is pharma. a big factor. Uh, but let's go back to the HPPD phenomenon. So in the former times since the 1960s, we definitely know that you can have kind of after effects sure. when, the, when the acute effect of the substance uh, are uh, over, means the substance is out of the body, but you still might feel like a little bit like on LSD, like on MDMA, stuff like that. And also there might be recurrence of uh, the, some parts of the experience, what you got through your hallucinogenic uh, intoxication, you might experience that later on when you hear the same music, for example, or you are together with the same people, or if you smoke cannabis or something like going into an altered state, you might be reminded on the state, on the drug. Uh, this phenomenon was also called flashback because it gives you a kind of flashback into what you have experienced before. Um, interestingly enough, this phenomenon is accepted by both manuals, yeah. diagnostic manuals, but it is a temporary condition. It means even if you have a very good trip and you have some kind of remembrance afterwards intensely, you would call a flashback, it goes away, it fades out with time. And these phenomena are predominantly there when you are uh, having a traumatic psychedelic experience. Then you might re-experience part parts of the experience again in an involuntarily, uh, in an involuntarily way. Um, the, the thing is that the American manual added these so-called HPPD, which is uh, hallucinogen-induced pers uh, persistent perceptual disorder, they have um, introduced that in addition, which the WHO doesn't accept because it's in kind of obscure uh, diagnostic feature. Um, to uh, come back to the research, 
So it seems that some people might be out there which, which have a kind of certain specific vulnerability to a hallucinogen intoxication. That might be true in a very low percentage. I don't want to exclude that completely. And so, therefore, we have conducted a study when I was visiting professor at the Harvard University in Boston. We have conducted a study on 25 people which we have examined uh, personally and have looked out for their uh, kind of uh, personality features and psychopathological features, like do they have any comorbidity, do they have more depressions than others, stuff like that. What we came across is the fact that these people have more dissociative experiences in general and even before they took the hallucinogenic drug. So that was quite obvious. It was also clear or becoming clear that they are kind of anxiety prone, okay. usually. And that is another feature. And um, we have also seen that uh, most of them, virtually all in fact, had visual aberrations quite a while before they were doing the hallucinogen. Mm -hmm. So there might be a certain type, personality type or a certain type of a neurological, somewhat neurological or um, eye-driven uh, condition in the person already before that person takes the hallucinogen. So that might be important to know to exclude possibly these people which might be at a certain risk to have some after effects which are unusual or not really good. So um, you're a scientist, so you, there's like only so far you can speculate away from the data, but I'll just tell you what that brings up for me. There's a, people listening who aren't scientists will imagine every country, I'm sure there's a German term for it, we talk about people who are away with the fairies. Now, <laughs> it sort of means potentially they don't necessarily have to have pathological dissociative sense, but they uh, might score very highly on fantasy proneness or absorption skills. And, and they, I wonder, does it overlap with high hypnotic suggestibility, things like that? And history would be littered in every country of people who just spontaneously had mystical experiences. I wonder, would that sort of, I mean, would you care to speculate on what correlates, if you had to bet on certain validated correlates that we have, either uh, tests or, yeah. or neurophysiological so, uh, correlates. So let, let, me, start, let me start by uh, quoting an experiment because I was in sorrow that hallucinogen research might become compromised by the fact that we might induce durable uh, pathological condition in people. And so I was in fear that the insurance companies might say, we will not give you insurance for these kind of experiments anymore because you were at pe taking people at risk of having a durable pathological condition afterwards. So I was really in sorrow. So I even wrote a book about all the evidence which we have about flashback phenomena. And interestingly enough, there was one study where they had pe people with, with an, with some, which had some flashbacks already a very few times in their life in respect to a uh, previous hallucinogen intoxication. They put these people in beds in the hospital, they gave them infusions, and the, nothing was in there, but half of the population was said, these things will induce flashbacks, and the other half was told it will help with flashbacks. And so what happened was, the one half of the population had flashbacks during the infusion, yeah. the others had none. 
crazy. So, I mean, you know, you see the suggestibility factor, what you already mentioned, is a major part of the whole thing if it comes to flashbacks. We are not talking about HPPD, what we, by the way, call um, HPPD type 2. So flashbacks would be HPPD type 1 and the, so the conventional flashbacks and HPPD type 2 would be these kind of obscure diagnosis what we are talking about. Atypical, the ones that don't fit the, the yeah. narrative. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely something I think that anyone reasonable coming at this, whether it was yourself from this more you know expert in, in microdosing and, and broadly, maybe Devin Terhoon, who's done work on hypnosis and its relationship to mid-level priors. You know, I know Robin Card Harris is an interest in obviously in, in, in these things and comes from a psychodynamic background before he was a neuroscientist. I don't think anyone reasonable is thinking that we shouldn't screen for these dissociative tendencies, but I almost think that you know, for for inclusion in, in in the studies, and also to just to run cult, to protect against the media latching on again to these uh, horror you know case studies, but I almost think it's maybe like a relative contraindication because dissociative uh, experiences, even post trip, if they are therapeutically managed, can be as opposed to maladaptive, can be deeply adaptive, can really help with integration. So I wouldn't like to think that we become too afraid of these types of uh, personality traits and think that they are excluded from because they might uh, cause uh, stories that the press would pick up on. So uh, it's, it's a no, tight it's line a, to, I, tight I think to you are on the right track and it's a good idea to look out for these kind of features and that they might have include a certain risk and so that you can put that into your calculation so to say but you you are also right that for example MDMA is to my eyes and from my huge experience is an anti-dissociative drug and so you can even heal people which tend to dissociate because of having traumatic experiences in the past and use dissociation as a defense mechanism, you can really help them with MDMA. That might differ if you would give them psilocybin or LSD. Then they might even dissociate in the hallucinogen-induced state. And so therefore, we really have to put that into the calculation. And so far, you're definitely right. That um, psychometric testing of um, MDMA as a way to sort of tighten up people's attachment to reality as opposed to dissociated is something I hadn't really considered but um, yeah. it's th this conference has been incredible because um, we, we talked off, off mic about how it's rare you go to a conference where it's there's scientific streams and then mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to go out there at this conference yeah. you can go pretty far out there yeah. but there's a lot of cross-pollination uh, I asked this of Stevens Wren is there anything outside of your normal wheelhouse your normal area of interest that you have taken away from the conference? Any ideas which you're wanting to take back to the lab that you've picked up that you'd like to share? Is there any sort of things that have piqued your interest? Yeah, it was mainly that I was quite well informed about the actual status of a lot of studies and where they are, and especially what I'm eager to do further work in is the therapeutic application, especially of MDMA, and I learned quite a bit about that here, where are these studies are and so on, but I would say in respect to inspiration inspiring me to do some research. It's not that much, but I might have inspired some people <laughs> yeah, to do some stuff here. And it's also very important to look at conferences, not like just as scientific events. They are also kind of fairs 
where you contact, connect with other people and where you inspire other people and you might get inspired by them and you find new ways to cooperate with each other and stuff and it's always a different thing to be in the cyberspace and on might, might be even on Skype and stuff like that then if you are really together you feel other and you talk other stuff. Yeah. I recently had the experience with somebody who want to try to interview me on the phone mm -hmm. and we started that and the machinery didn't work And so we had to stop that. I mean, it was for nothing. Yeah. And then later on, we met in person and we did quite a different interview. Yeah. And so, so if you want to interview somebody, <laughs> as you do, you should sit in front of him. And he will trust you more and he will bring up more and stuff like that. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And that's why I you know, decided to come because we're human beings and yeah. the social, uh, all the communication yeah. is yeah. just so reductive, yeah. I yeah. think. I don't know about smells and stuff like that, <laughs> and and more sympathy. You yeah, you're, you're more in resonance with the other person, right? If, absolutely. If you sit together and, and stuff, and you feel more authenticity and stuff, and so it's a different deal, definitely. So, so, um, Torsten, you've mentioned this, you know, future interest. Your your trajectory is the therapeutic. Would it be fair to characterize it as you will, you have, done you have really clarified and consolidated a lot of the work in the past you have got you've helped get things up to speed where it really feels like we are on a threshold of sorts um looking beyond likely fda approval of mdma what would be your guidance for the therapeutic community in terms of creating a therapeutic container for how to work with MDMA specifically in the first iteration. So, you know, let's say three, four, five years when the train people, when we reach the bottleneck and people start yeah. coming out and actually yeah. running residential yeah. centers. Or so there are two aspects of that. One is, um, could we broaden the spectrum of indications in the future? It is, uh, in general, it's much more easy if you have a medication already on the market for a certain indication for a certain disease, and then you can expand your indication. So the spectrum of diseases you are able and approved uh, to treat or permitted to treat. Uh, that is one aspect of the thing. So it means MDMA can be helpful for much more conditions than just PTSD. I'm sure about that, and I've seen that in clinical practice too. Uh, the other thing is um, we have had, uh, I'm in the field for 30 years, and we have had quite a bit of problems in the past with the abuse of patients during that kind of psychedelic or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. There are known cases, which have been even court cases and stuff like that, in the 1980s already. And uh, also we have seen uh, uh, therapists which feel kind of grandiose because they can induce these impressive experiences in patients. Um, and they have seen that in the 1960s too. So it was kind of a rumor or a saying that if you're not a good therapist, you might use these drugs because you compensate for your inability to create good psychotherapy. So that could be one problem. The other thing is if you go into this kind of narcissism, you know, I'm grandiose because I can induce these substances, and I'm in power of inducing these uh, kind of things and stuff like that, then you will get quite a bit of problems and you will produce a quite bit, a bit of problems in your social environment as well as with the patients. And so therefore, my recommendation as a long-term research in the field is definitely not give 
people a permission to use these drugs in their offices on their own. My clear plaidoyer is we have to have a certain social control and it's also just usual, uh, prof the professional way as usual is to implement these treatments into clinics, special departments where you have a staff where you have a team which is supervised by professionals and which is also working together and having social control automatically. And so if somebody, maybe a therapist, is getting in that grandiose direction or getting kind of little megalomanic and stuff, the others will catch him and say, okay, what you're doing here is kind of strange and blah, blah, blah. You know? But if you let people do that in their offices, dangers are pre-programmed as we know from the past. And we are quite sure about that. I have worked quite a bit with the people in Switzerland, um, and we have seen these problems there too. So you have to be really careful implementing these things. Another thing, what is really important is, is uh, that during the last 40 years, every psychiatrist was trained to dump down emotions, to, uh, to make emotional blunting in the people to induce that by all these tranquilizers, antidepressants. Antidepressants don't work for mood enhancement. They work by blunting emotions so that you can handle a bad situation in a passive way better, so to say, which is not true because you're not getting healed. You don't heal the situation. You don't heal yourself. You're just numbing us to, to go on further and stuff like that. So what would happen with a population of psychiatrists trained for 40 years to dump down emotions with these materials which evoke emotions? You know? So that might be a real problem to implement these kind of treatments into the psychiatric community. But I don't want to leave you without a sign of optimism, which is that I remember that in the late 1970s, as well as in the 1980s, we had a lot of experiential therapies going on with the humanistic psychology movement. So the psychiatric profession in the former times was in a certain phase quite more open to these emotion-evoking uh, therapies and coping more active with all the stuff in yourself as well as outside. Those concerns about um, chaperoning, and then also the more almost like psychodynamic, like transference, counter-transference, power differentials, things that you're talking about clinically, um, and um, th those issues with maybe the current body of psychiatrists all having tr been trained in a certain paradigm. Psychologists, I would include in that as well. You know, they talk about containing trauma a lot, so there's a there's an element of that as well. So there, there obviously needs to be some paradigm shifts, but I'm personally a fan of slow revolution because I think if, if things change too quickly, too fast, any system, be it, be it a, a mental health or a road system, it doesn't matter, destabilizing it, changing too quickly is one of the, the most quickest ways to just retard progress. I, I, that's just my, I don't know mm -hmm. what you think about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I would generally agree. But right now, we all, we not just having uh, an uh, successively open door about the psychedelics, we also have another serious problem in psychiatry because we are left after more than 30 years of neurobiological research in psychiatry, we are left with two recognitions. First off, 
all the brain imaging studies have shown that all the psychiatric diseases have the same aberrations in the brain. So there's no way to differentiate between the disease entities in respect to using neuroimaging. First off, the other thing is that last year a review was published about all these genome-wide association studies, which means about the genetics of psychiatric diseases. What they found is that they still just can speculate, but what they found is in all kind of psychiatric diseases, the same genes are involved. So there is no differentiation on that part. And what we also have to resume is that after 30 years of neurobiological research in psychiatry, uh, we have no new treatment option. We are still with ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. We are still with psychotherapy. We are still with all these shitty medications. You know, we haven't found anything new. So we have no idea, one, about the cause, and we have no idea, one, how to treat. So we have to change our paradigm. If we are sober, we really kind of have to leave neurobiological psychiatry aside somewhat. We might still further it, but on a much more smaller scale. And let's go back to the patient and their treatment. Ask the patients how they can be helped and stuff like that. That hasn't been done during the last 30 years because everybody was believing that we will find the solution in the genes, in epigenetic processes, whatever, whatever, whatever. And nothing came out of it. And this is, meanwhile, not just my view. It's even in the established journals coming up in editorials, meanwhile, that, that we haven't won so much by these approaches. And so, therefore, we are in a dead end in respect to psychopharmacological agents. Nothing new on the market, nothing in the pipeline, no new developments. It's the same as the case for psychotherapy. And therefore, right now, the psychedelics are coming up again. It's not just because they are good. It's also because everything else is not good. Yeah, it's relative. And um, so that, that um, as they say, must do is a great master and we must yeah. do better yeah. for the, yeah. the clients. Maybe I shouldn't have been that radical. <laughs> nothing else is good. That's not quite true. But yeah. a lot of that stuff, what we thought, is uh, good or good for the patient, if you really evaluate, it's not. And so therefore, we still need other treatments. And right now, we're back with the psychedelics. And I hope that we will find a kind of new synthesis between pharmacotherapy as well as, um, as um, uh, psychotherapy. So these basic approaches, which are already the, base, uh, the basis of psychiatry, can uh, do give a synergy and this was a hope in the 1960s already and we might complete that thing right yeah. now and i think just humility to we know no generation is going to have the, the final the final word on it yeah. we just have to keep yeah, chipping that's away true, yes. Your initial journey into this field was interesting to me, and it's, you've recounted it a few times, but do you feel you have a sensibility for these um, potential dissociative states? Because you, you mentioned in a few podcasts that you, you had quite a profound experience when you were, like, for example, working on a fishing uh, tackle. Uh, could you give some context to that and, and maybe explain how your trajectory... Uh, in mental health was potentially altered at quite a quite an early stage. 
Yeah, okay. So, um, in fact, it was the case that I had this kind of mystical experience staring at the float for hours, and then it was like a meditation I see in retrospect. Um, and so every everything became one, and I was one with nature and stuff like that, and I, it was a very ex, uh, happy experience. I had very happy mood too during the experience, and it was immediately intuitively clear to me that one, that was one of the most worthful experience you can get. It was immediately clear. And I, at that point in time, I was kind of 17 or something, and I uh, was an atheist. And so my whole worldview was broken down by that experience. And so I had a really hard time to cope with that. And I'm always wondering that the people say, oh, they got a mystic experience and a good therapeutic success. You can't say that of me because I was so much irritated by the experiences in a way. I, it, they were very useful. They had a lot of impact up until now. But uh, I had really a problem to integrate that in my worldview and also in my personality pattern. It was really hard. I worked hard with that. I even had to consult a psychotherapist to help me with that. It was really hard to go through that process of transformation, if you want. It will not follow up immediately. You don't get a psilocybin experience and then immediately you are better and everything is well integrated and stuff like that. But it seems that for most of the patients, it's not as complicated as it was for me. <laughs> yeah. So the, you might look out for screening them out for atheism or something. <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah. But it might be also true that it was my immature state when I had that experience. So it uh, might have impacted. Do you mean immature? Now, yeah. I, yeah, the, it might have impacted me more because my identity wasn't formed, formed and sure. wasn't stabilized appropriately. So, yeah, but you can't really, um, how should I say, you can't really call such an experience in. Yeah. You know, you, you, are, you might be kind of. Like a lightning or something, it might come into you, and you have no choice. That's it, you know. And and the the state of mind where I was in at that moment was, in retrospect, it was completely appropriate to have such an experience. So so I could see that there were some features in the situation which have induced it very nice nature, a good mood. And a, and a very interesting mood in the in the weather and stuff like that. So there were some features which can induce these kind of things. And but but it I was always wondering how people can easily integrate these kind of things. How long do you think it took you to integrate? Um, I would say years. Yeah. Yeah. And I even had a kind of let's say half a year where I was really in a hard uh, to cope with state. Yes. Well, I'm I'm very glad that you had this almost naturalistic experience, and then uh, you had the presence of mind to seek out psychotherapy. Because I think that I'm sure that we we have obviously can't have any data on how often that happens for young people who then just lose their way. So uh, my uh, st uh, to proceed with that story. So it was I was a philosopher at that point of time. So I studied philosophy, and then. I came, uh, this experience was so fascinating that I was searching for every kind of literature about it. So I consulted the libraries, I was uh, going out for teachers, looking up and religious people and stuff like that. So I interviewed everybody and I tried to get all the knowledge together. And then uh, after a while I was in the medical school and you're looking out in the library and stuff and somebody saw me there and I was quite young and he told me, it was in the evening, he told me, what are you doing here all the time, you know? And I said, I'm studying here. And then he, he told me, why are you not studying here? 
I mean, I was at the philosophical faculty, so, you know, why are you studying here? And so after a while, I realized, because I've read at that time a lot of stuff about shamanism too and stuff, and then I kind of got an inner call or something, I don't know how, how to name it, and, and we call it Berufung in Germany. Uh, it means that you have to do something even without your will. Compelled. Could yeah, be, yeah. yes. And uh, so at a certain point, I realized I have to be a person like a shaman or something like that because I had these experiences after the first experience. I had some with psychedelics because I found out that they can induce these kind of things. And so later on, I, I felt the healing potential of these experiences. And I took it very seriously, so I was going into looking at therapeutic effects of these experiences, and then it came up to my mind that I have to change my way of studying to medicine to, to be a person to conduct this kind of research and to go into therapeutic work and to re-establish these substances in society. But uh, I also want to mention that I was quite on my own. For tens of years, nobody was there. I remember I gave an interview with, uh, with the uh, popular science magazine, uh, New Scientist, in 2008. Nobody was there. I was completely on my own, and I was even feeling that way and giving these statements kind of in that interview. Since that time, a lot has changed, and I'm very happy that we are now in a new wave of establishing the healing potential of the psychedelics. I, I can't imagine that would have been easy, and uh, when you were in your early 20s, you probably felt, oh gosh, I've, I've just gone through all this destabilizing things, and now I'm in with uh, young medics. I... I initially started studying medicine wonderful profession but it f almost felt like the dogged acquisition of knowledge you're looking for you're enacting answers massive greatest respect for doctors but there is a certain type of mindset which potentially struggles because they're seeking they're not looking to just routinize the treatment Right now here, they are much into getting publicity for their research. In the former times when I had uh, my studies going on at Hanover Medical School, my clinical studies with some psychedelic drugs, I always said to everybody, I don't need any publicity. So I never gave an interview. I was never quoted in any newspaper or stuff like that. At that point of time, it was even dangerous to do that. What year? Some, what year? Um, uh, in the 1990s. Early 1990s. Yeah, yeah. yeah the late 1990s late, and the okay. beginning of the 2000s. It wow, was even yeah. dangerous. So I never, even most people at my department didn't know what I was doing. So I kind of kept it secret. I was not paranoid, but you know, I I didn't make a big deal out of it. It's a bit like when when people say coming out of the closet. It is yeah. almost like like that. In yeah. a way, you're living your life, and but you're you're you've it's a double life. I personally think. That that is that type of duplicity that we, yeah. people have to live. I don't know how good that. Like it's, I couldn't design a way for a less integrative thing <laughs> to live different ways. Would you agree with that? It's yeah. I, nobody could expect that it will be that big at last as it is right now. So I, in the later years, I thought to myself, okay, that was a secret science in the antique times with the shamans and so on, and in Ulysses and wherever. Um, and so it is still a kind of secret science. And so it might be still a very tiny little river going on forever, but very tiny. But now it swells, and it becomes much, 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 much more, even so-called mainstream. 
That's a good it's a good metaphor because rivers when they do burst their banks they get very big but they sometimes go back again so it could just be yeah. that it this swells and grows yeah. with each generation and yeah, exactly uh, wise, and maybe wise that's the way say. of it yeah. maybe that's the way of it over over uh, over intergenerationally that's what's supposed to happen um but i think uh, the psychedelics might in fact be so effective in therapeutic work especially if we have really found the appropriate indications and counterindications that they will be never left again no. i think so i wonder when you're talking about this sort of straddling the worlds of psychopharmacology and, and, and psychotherapy there's traditionally been these two paths there's been the talk therapists and all the uh, auxiliary professions and then there have been the psychiatrists and um, maybe the more hard scientists are we looking at not we're always talking about the therapeutic container what about the professional container do we need to start thinking about training protocols that are new ostensibly and, and are, are a, a new iteration of what it is to be a mental health professional? It's, it's a very important uh, question because um, all these scientists are scientists, they do research, so it's very segmented and it's not really looking out for being implemented in society or even in the psychiatric or psychotherapeutic profession. Right? And so therefore it's very important that we develop these kind of guidelines. And to be honest, uh, recently we founded uh, the International Society for Substance Assisted Psychotherapy with all the great guys in it, in the board of directors, so that we, can, uh, we are able to set up these kind of standards and develop treatment protocols and guidelines and stuff like that, and also uh, providing assistance in respect to uh, handling dangerous situations and uh, also evaluating the treatments as well as uh, quality assurance, stuff like that. And I, you are completely right, that's really important, and I think that's uh, on time right now. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to say as well, and then more um, psychological training, I think there should be a much greater integration of just pharmacology. Yeah. And neuroscience. Yeah. I just don't know if you can yeah. get out there and yeah. start working. Yeah, without, the, uh, uh, you are touching another problem, which is, to my eyes, that um, uh, right now we have a more or less rudimentary education for the so-called psychedelic therapist. You can't definitely not learn that in a one-week course. Definitely not. Your patients may be even at risk with these kind of things. I think that there is a difference in between the substances too. MDMA is generally very benign. So you might go on with some therapists which are not educated over years to, with this kind of therapy. I think if they have been skilled psychotherapists with some experience, let's say five years or something in the background, then they might handle it appropriately. This is quite different with LSD and psilocybin. These substances are much more sensitive to outside influences and also to transference phenomena and all these kind of things. And so therefore, these people should be much more educated. But what we see right now is that the therapists, even the ones which are working on the trials right now with psilocybin, are not well educated in that respect. And so the people might be at a certain risk of dangers even. But on the other side, how do you want to teach people and learn people if you're not doing it on a practical way? My recommendation would be, however, that if you have these kind of, let's say, inexperienced therapists going on with that kind of work, they should have good supervisors and good people in the background which have a lot of more experience and can uh, counsel them. Consult yeah. 
consult with them. Yeah. I mean, I think the term consultant is obviously yeah. loaded medically, yeah. but that's been my experience. And yeah. um, if you speak to people who who, who sit, it's exhausting. You don't yeah. necessarily need. There's it's punctu. It's long periods of doing very little, yeah. punctuated by really important little moments of intervention you might not need to have a phd but you yeah. do need to have a sensibility yeah. and you also need some you also have it. to have some uh, education and i think you have to be licensed as a psychotherapist to handle these uh, substances and the people in these states yeah. M- my concern and this isn't pointed in any particular direction but i'd never like to see the monopolizing of training i think that there should be a, a, I don't want to say an unregulated, a free market, not unregulated, but and what I would look for would be, okay, you have your style, it's a little bit more woo-woo, you guys are a little bit more this, you do whatever you want, I'm interested, and we all agree on a metric, we choose a validated measure, whoever gets the, the, the best, uh, let's roll out your training, you know, and, and, and every other training style that can't reach your level, you must justify where you're doing that. That I'm concerned about orthodoxy, about training, developing, and it becoming politically motivated and ideologically motivated and excluding and repudiating meritocracy. Yeah, I, I think you're completely on the right track. I completely agree with that. Uh, on the other side, uh, when you first establish uh, these trainings, you just have a few institutions sure. going on, and later on it will be much more distributed and somewhat de- becoming diver- de- diverse. Uh, we have that see- seen that with psychoanalytic education, for example, as therapists, uh, and other uh, modalities of therapies, that at first there were just a few institutes which have a kind of establishing even a kind of dogma or something like that, but it softens later on and you will have uh, different styles. But so the problem then is what happens, that's fair enough, and that diversification as well is to be welcomed. Like I say, put the arbitrary suggestions in at the start of the scientific method and see what comes out, like be empirical about it. But what can happen is that that's supposed to be a sort of iterative process and it's transitory in that you get all these, mo- do whatever you want, let's look at the results, okay, they are clearly outperforming you, so everyone must collapse into that, and then we expand out from there. What can creep in, and what I've seen coming from a different field from psychotherapy, is total, well, not total, a big degree of relativism for people's modalities. So it's sort of unthinkable for an oncologist to start in the 1980s to a procedure a certain way, and then you go back and see them with the same condition in 30 years, and they're using the same techniques. If you see someone who in a, a high street, I could go out there and there's some dude who's practicing exactly the same style of psychotherapy that he did when he started 40 years ago. Yeah, but That's no, not okay. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. But now we have this kind of principle of uh, continuous medical education so that you have to get some credit points kind of for having uh, attended some seminars with new kind of therapeutic uh, methods and medications and so on. And in Germany, it's kind of strict you yeah. don't have clinics where you can work. Yeah, where you, you don't have, you don't have. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's strict but in Germany. No, no, no. It's it's strict in that respect that you have to bring up uh, every year a certain amount of credit points, otherwise you will lose your license. If you're going to these events and don't get anything in your mind, 
we can't do anything about that. But otherwise, if you are there, you will assimilate some stuff and you might change your attitude in respect to some therapeutic we, uh, we, we handlings. Could, we could bring out some people and they both have your certificates and they yeah. say, here we go, Dr. Passy, here's my 100 yeah. hours of CPD. Yeah. If you had been a fly on the wall during yeah. their 100 hours, you could go, this is a notable nonsense, <laughs> you know. And another guy's got 100 hours of pure knowledge in, in his yeah. or her brain. So, yeah. You know, I'm I'm not I'm just playing devil's advocate yeah, because yeah, the CPD sure. problem definitely doesn't yeah. solve it because anyone yeah. can get a laminated piece of paper to say that they yeah. sat in a room and listened to yeah. a yeah, yeah, nonsense yeah. for yeah. a yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but on the other side, how do you want to solve these issues? Uh, yeah. You have to put people in there, and if let's say. 10 to 20 percent don't get so much out of it it doesn't matter the 80 80 percent do just to a certain degree if there was a if there was a protocol and someone said if you juggle three little apples in front of people when they're having a trip we have got statistically significant at six month and one year follow-ups reduction in treatment resistant depression you know and it's better than your psychoanalysis and it was statistic and it was replicated again and again me and you would have to go I have to learn to juggle now. <laughs> because yeah, you and, just and, have to I, follow and the I, I, as a scientist, I would uh, promote the hypothesis that if the people themselves juggle mm-hmm. the depressives mm-hmm. during the psychedelic state, they might get better with their depression. It might be true. Because they feel competence, they feel eloquence, they feel their body much more than usual as in depression and so on. And so you might have developed a therapeutic method right now. <laughs> How do we prepare therapists to be well and to be integrated enough? Because you wouldn't go and get us. I wouldn't go and get a tailor-made suit off a guy in a pearly yeah, suit. You are in the middle of the matter with that statement. And uh, from my experience, you have to have yourself uh, a lot of psychotherapy to go through, so that you can free your heart to be not the way that you have to defend yourself against a lot of the emotions which might come up because you yourself might have problems with some sorts of emotions and memories and stuff and uh, what what the people might report to you or might be in states of emotions where you immediately kind of feel with because they are so obvious and, and they kind of infect you somewhat. And if you can't let them through you and reach you and be go into a resonance with that because you have your own defensive patterns because you have also gone through some traumatic experience as everybody uh, uh, to put it uh, shortly uh, if you have not a free heart these things can be a burden on you as a therapist because you have to defend you are under tensions and stuff like that so if you have not cleared up your heart and your issues the most of them, then you would be not able to really appropriately accompany a person in a psychedelic state. Definitely, and I think particip- uh, client, uh, sorry, um, supervisor or, or practitioner preparation is, is really important. Uh, just uh, one last, not controversial, but a, a little bit more out there topic that understandably won't come up just yet, but I think we will have to face is there's been a lot of talk about integrating into the training procedures uh, maybe what you're alluding to is having some visceral sensibility for what the psychedelic state feels like and they've incorporated that into the MDMA training program where FDA have okayed it that the therapists have MDMA sessions which I think is is perfectly reasonable science from a phenomenological point of view 
One thing that uh, the neuroscientist Sam Harris talks about um, is that he says about um, in his uh, he, he says that you uh, when he had a bad a challenging trip, let's say, it's still worth the price of admission because he now finds it easier to generate um, sympathy for those with flagrant mental illness, so the psychomimetic aspect of it. Not that we want to induce that in therapists, but I, I've never had a challenging experience like that, but I can imagine how it could be therapeutically very, very useful from, from a therapist's point of view to generate sufficient empathy. I mean, how, w- how do you chase that down? Is that, is that just something that you have to allow it organically happen or you know is there what are your thoughts on that i mean uh, there is there was this uh, kind of general question coming up recent quite recently um, again and again uh, should uh, should the therapist have experiences with the drugs themselves that's the main question it was answered already during a lot of the trials in the 1960s everybody said yes On the other side, some of the research was kind of compromised because the therapists were uh, so much affected by their experiences that they became enthusiastic and they kind of become loose on the scientific measures, stuff like that. So non-objectivity, if you want. That might be a danger. It's not as much a danger in real psychotherapy without uh, um, um, outside of a, a strict scientific setting, right? Um, so therefore, I would definitely do a plaidoyer for having these experiences. So if you ask cl- any clinicians, what, wh- whoever you ask, ask, they will say definitely they have to have a few of these experiences before they start treating patients. Um, some, some, yeah, you could say in between three and ten. That would be my recommendation. Um, the other thing is that If you ask scientists, more strict scientists, they they might say, or also people interested in bringing the therapy immediately to the patient, oh, we don't don't prepare therapists, we want to go on and stuff like that. This is not a really good idea. And one uh, kind of metaphor for that could be, uh, how would you trust a person who will kind of guide you through a mountain trip, knowing that that person has no idea what's coming, right? That is not really a good idea, and I wouldn't trust that person as much, for sure, especially if it comes to difficult circumstances. But, and I, my personal experience when I guided my subjects in my scientific studies through the process, um, I felt so secure because I've already conducted sessions with hundreds of people before I conducted my research at Hanover Medical School, that I was so calm, I was so stable in the situation that the subjects felt that immediately, that that is a person who will not interfere with my process, he will be there, he's completely stable, he's completely trusting the process, and he will give me just a tiny little bit of advice to go through that experience. And so uh, even these doctors, which I have led through the experience, uh, had a very safe feeling with a person which they felt that that person is really experienced and really is knowing what he's doing and is really kind of cool in that sense that they will not interfere with anything or panic because you panic or stuff like that and will always lead you on the path again if that is necessary in a very gentle fashion. Exactly. Because that person might trust the experience more. 
because he has experienced it a few times, and so therefore he knows what he's trusting, and not he is not knowing what's going on. I think that's even a danger if you put people there which have no knowledge about the experience, and what, even one experience is definitely not enough. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, you obviously want to viscerally prepare the practitioners to, to have this phenomenological experience, which is really only going to be pharmacologically induced. Um, but another thing I'm thinking is, if we're talking about CPD and you want someone to have those hundreds of hours of under the belt, what we might be able to do is look across all the other circle back on all the different modalities that are involved with altered states of consciousness, so holotropic breath work, um, hypnosis, for example, mm -hmm. and say, okay, let's just, let's work with a, an eminently titratable subject, the breath, the suggestion, and just, it's not the same, but it's almost like working in an aircraft simulator for a pilot is not the same as flying a, a, an Airbus, but it's better than nothing and so you can quickly rack up hundreds of hours working with people <coughs> in a way that's very safe so you know you could augment their training with live sessions so you've got that three-pronged approach just thinking this now they've had their own phenomenological experiences of you know different natures maybe they've had a challenging trip that they've integrated themselves they have also worked in other non-ordinary states of consciousness and um and then they've got all the other training and so it isn't their first rodeo whenever yeah, they're yeah, working with exactly. people. Yeah, exactly. And if you look in the uh, on the tradition where these substances have been used in whatever kind of work in the past, in I mean a thousand years and and further, uh, you will always see that the shaman has the doctor, the medicine man has done these experiences on himself quite a few times, if not a few hundred. And so, therefore, these guys were really experienced, and I don't see, see why we should really handle these matters differently by being objective and having no idea about these gravely altered states. You know, they are really different than your usual condition. They are really different experiences. You might get pseudo-hallucinations. You might get kind of delusional thoughts and stuff like that. You might also get a mystical experience, but you also have to be... Uh, uh, trusted by the therapist that you are on the right track and stuff like that and he if he knows what your experience may be like then he might trust the process more than when he's a skeptical outsider so to say anxious that something might go wrong and they have to contextualize it by knowing your history because yeah. maybe as a young atheist a young atheist yeah. it would have been good for you to just say uh, God's elbow, you know, yeah. instead of the whole thing, because <laughs> then you maybe go, right. yes. maybe don't go fishing for a while, yeah, Torsten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's it's just a fascinating area, and I think the word that I keep coming back to, I'm stealing this from uh, fashion, I suppose, or different things, is that French word of atelier, a space where people are just no ideas off the table, and it's it's we're aiming at efficacy, we're aiming at excellence, we're, we're, we can go out there, but we're trying to put it all together. It's always cross. Uh, uh, different silos of expertise and much like an atelier in Givenchy would inform the high street in a fashion that's not going to be as out there we can inform the high street and inform the people or the clinics because I'm concerned that the views of a certain agenda driven will dictate now in this very important embryonic stage the way the therapy is conducted and once and if it isn't expansive enough, if it's, it might become impoverished, and we're saying, oh, this we're, we're augmenting the psychedelic therapy, but there's a counterfactual that it could have been better had we just surrendered to empiricism, had we surrendered to 
um, not being close-minded. So that's uh, we just need to. I think the word is surrender. I am so conscious of of both of our times because I actually have to go uh, to a session now, and I know you have to jet off and Torsten does not trust the London underground <laughs> system to get to Heathrow <laughs> which is wise enough. Th- this is an empirical finding. This is an empirical right? finding, yeah. <laughs> this is not woo-woo. This is f- philosophical materialism <laughs> 101 on the central line. Torsten, it's been a real yeah. pleasure. I'm glad we got to do this yeah. in person. Um, we just snatched a bit of time in the session yeah, sure. and I'll hopefully get over yeah. to Germany to come and see you and learn some of yeah. these wonderful sure. German words that yeah. you dropped. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you schön yeah. and uh, how do you say see you soon in german is there uh, auf wiedersehen auf wiedersehen auf wiedersehen. Uh, auf wiedersehen i hope to see you soon and uh, thanks for this professional podcast interview <laughs> thank you so i hope you enjoyed our chat torsten was great company and i'm glad we did it in person and would definitely like to do it again in the future Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping get this content in front of more people. I have more recently been sucked into the world of Twitter, so you can follow at MindManifestPod for more info. Uh, Just subscribe there and you'll get updates with regards to podcast episodes and other bits of information. Next up, I have uh, audio from a few recent talks I have given about the phenomenological overlap between hypnotically induced and psychedelically induced states. And I also gave a talk at the Royal College of Surgeons recently, exploring the possibility of using MDMA to treat specific phobias, as I think the high comorbidity between specific phobias and PTSD might suggest that specific phobias would respond in similar ways to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So stay tuned for those episodes, and thanks again for listening. And until next time, take care.